Welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast, where we unpack what it's really going to take to close the gender gap in the workplace. Here is your host, leadership coach and diversity consultant, Andrea Jansen. This episode is sponsored by Duckish Natural Skincare. I am super excited that they have jumped on board to sponsor the show because I actually know Carolyn Crew, the founder, personally. A couple of years ago, before there was a Reignite Your Ambition coaching program, before there was a workshop, before there was an ambitious everyday journal, I had an idea for an exercise to help people get clear on what drives their ambition so that they could set goals, feel fulfilled, and have something to strive for. So before I could do that, I actually had a group of entrepreneurs that I knew, and I asked them if I could test the exercise on them. So I asked Carolyn, what is the something that you're striving for? What drives your ambition? What motivates you to get up every day and go to work? And she said, 2%. And I didn't really expect an answer like that. And I asked her to explain. And she said that only 2% of women entrepreneurs actually reach a million dollars in annual revenue in their businesses. And that is what motivated her to start Duckish Natural Skincare. They have lotion sticks, lip balm, baby products, and bath products. They're really innovative. And my favorite product is their lotion stick. It looks like deodorant, but it's actually lotion. So you just rub it on your legs, you rub it on your arms, your hands, your face. You can even use it as a lip balm. And I love it because it's solid. And when I travel, I can keep it in my carry-on and I don't need to worry about having too much liquid to get through security. And for all of the Diversity at Work listeners, Duckish is offering you 15% off of your order. So you need to head to duckish.ca, that is D-U-C-K-I-S-H dot C-A, and enter the promo code diversity at work at checkout, and you will get 15% off of your order. The way I see it is that if you need to buy lotion anyways, might as well buy it from a women-owned business so that you can do your part to close the gender gap. They ship to the U.S. and Canada, so head to duckish.ca and enter the promo code diversity at work and you will get 15% off. Hello, it's Andrea Jansen here, and on this episode of Diversity at Work, I am having a conversation with Lorian Barlow. I met Lorian a couple of months ago at the Autodesk University Conference, where we were both speaking, and she is making a documentary called Hard-Hatted Woman, which follows the lives of women working in the trades in the United States. So we sat down and we talked about what's holding women back from progressing in the trades, And really, what are some of the reasons why women go into the trades in the first place? Because it's not what you think. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hi, Lorian. Thank you so much for coming on the Diversity at Work podcast. Can you introduce yourself and tell everybody listening what you do? Yeah, sure. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I am, I'm Lorian Barlow. I'm the director and producer of a documentary film called Hard Hatted Woman, which is going to be the first feature length documentary film about women in the building trades. Cool. So can you tell everybody where you are? Because you're based in the US, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm in New York. Um, but I actually during the process of filming, really wanted the story to feel like a national story. And so I very deliberately thought out characters in different parts of the country. 
Um, and we, so we did a lot of traveling. So the, the sort of the broader landscape of the U.S. is represented in the film. And I actually did have a few Canadian tradeswomen who were like giving the plug to come to Canada and do some filming. And I was like, oh, it's just, you know, there's, there's tradeswoman world is so big and rich, um, and, and international. I mean, like I have like Australian followers and I, I was interviewed by a newspaper in Japan because construction, uh, women in construction is a big thing there too. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had to sort of like, I just had to make some decisions to be like, this is, I'm just going to stay in the U S for this, at least for this one, for part one, you know? Oh, Um, I love it. So all, everybody's kind of stepping up and excited about the film and kind of cheering you on and supporting the mission, this getting the story out there. I love that. And it just kind of happened organically through all of these trade women connecting through their own communities. Um, But I'm really curious, before you decided to take this on, to make a movie about women in construction, what was going on for you? Um, That's a good question. I I actually had been, in my 20s, really passionate about documentary film and had tried to get my foot in the door and and was like a personal assistant for a few filmmakers who... um, and I just got, you know, it's a, it's a very hard industry to crack into. There's a lot of like unpaid internships, et cetera. And I was, I got to the point where I was just like, you know what, I need to, I need to have a real job, you know? <laughs> so I decided to become a teacher. Um, and uh, I taught for a few years and just was not happy and um, really felt like I had given up on my dream too quickly um, in terms of doc film. So I, I had a mentor at the time who was, who was also a filmmaker and um, she's a close friend and she'd made like three films. And I really watched her struggle. Like I was under no illusions about how difficult it was going to be um, to kind of like jump in with both feet and say, I am making a film, an inde- independent film, you know, raising the money myself. And, um, and, but she just really, um, you know, uh, cheered me on and said, you have to do this. You won't be happy until you do. And um, I just, I just decided, okay, you know, what have I got to lose? And um, at this point, you know, my, my teaching career had sort of gone up in smoke. <laughs> so I was sort of like at this jumping off point and it just seemed like the right moment. Um, so I did decide first, okay, I, I want to, I want to make my first film. Um, but then, you know, in sort of exploring the story and the topics that might be worthwhile. Um, I was, I, I think I heard another filmmaker say like with doc film, you have to really be choose a story that you love because you are going to be married to it for five, at least five years, if not longer. Um, cause doc films just take so long to make. And so it was that really sunk in. It was like, this is going to be something that you have to be in it for the long haul. And you have to really, um, feel inspired and enriched by the, by, by who you meet, by the places you go, by the, you know, the issues that this film will bring up for you. So, um, so I, for me, tradeswomen came, the inspiration of tradeswomen came serendipitously very early on in the process. And the moment I thought of it, I was like, the, I knew I wanted to spend the next five, no, no, six or seven years, five and climbing years of my life with these women. Because um, I don't know, I just, I felt a kinship to them. I feel like any woman in the world, in a way it's a, it's kind of a, it's a very unique story. Women in the trades have a very, 
a extreme experience of of being in a male dominated space, but I think there are elements of their story that women everywhere can connect to. Um, and I was, I just knew I wanted to spend that much time with them and get to know that world. So it's been very immersive and it's actually become my life. I, I actually met my partner on the film and uh, who is also a tradeswoman and very active organizer. Um, and so she was going through her apprenticeship at the time. So we basically, uh, we're, we're just very, very good friends now, but we lived together for five years during the making of the film. And it was like, my whole life was about tradeswomanity. <laughs> So it's it's been truly immersive in every sense. So how did you even start looking at this as a story? Were you exposed to trades growing up? No, no, it was well, no, it's um I mean I think the point of connection for me personally was like not only being, you know, a, an adult feminist, but then having been a girl in a family with, you know, a dad and a brother who never let her do things that she wanted to do. Cause it was like, well, you know, whether it was like building the campfire or like learning how to fish um, or, you know, fixing something. It, I just, I knew in my bones, like what it felt like to be like elbowed out of these spaces that I wanted to play in, but weren't traditionally, you know, for girls or whatever it was the father son thing. So I think I, from a very young age, I, I connected with this experience and then all the way up through my teens and twenties, um, just kind of continued to have like this pioneering spirit um, and just, and wanting to live very authentically and um, in, in terms of, um, yeah, gender and otherwise. So, um, so I think there was a personal resonance with the story, but, tr- but specifically in terms of trades or tradeswomen, I was, I was literally inspired by a conversation I had um, um, prior to starting the film, obviously a few years back, I met a tradeswoman who tried to get into the union in um, St. Louis and, you know, loved carpentry and loved, you know, being in her body and building things and being outside all day and just described to me like the, the nature of the trades and how male dominated it was. It was very difficult for women, et cetera. Um, And so she ended up leaving. She just gave up and became also became a teacher actually. So, um, so it kind of stuck with me like a seed, you know, and I said, Oh, wow, gosh, that's a, it's something that's a world I never thought of. Wow. Women in trades. And, and, um, and then I was in a, around the time I was thinking about my film and what film I was going to make and find, trying to find my story. Um, I was in a bookstore and I saw this book on the shelf with a, a woman in a miner's helmet and there was like all soot on her face and she's wearing work boots and smiling. And it's just like the image was so powerful and striking. And I grabbed it off the shelf and it was called alone in the crowd trades women tell their stories. And it was this collection of like oral histories, um, from like the seventies, um, it's out of print now. It's actually, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautifully presented book. Um, and, um, and I, so I snapped it up, I, I read it. And as I'm reading it, it's like, oh my God, the, the film was jumping off the page at me. I was like, these women's stories is so cinematic. It's so gritty and real. And there's so much emotional dimension to it. And I was like, this must be a film already. Surely someone's made a film about these women. And I went, you know, did some research online and no one, no one really had, there wasn't like a proper theatrical length cinematic film about this world um, and these characters. And so I, I was like, that was the moment I was like, it clicked. This was going to be my 
my life's work for the next chapter. So, okay. So you talked about being a feminist and I do not know a lot about the film industry at all. I'm curious about, is there a gender gap in kind of documentary filmmaking? It is no. So, okay. How it is much better in the doc space than it is in the narrative, the fiction film space. So I think recently I saw some statistics um, where in terms of directors, documentaries are almost half and half, half, half women, half men directing docs. Um, whereas in the narrative film space, it's almost like 5%, 3 three or 5% women behind the camera. So interestingly, like very close to the percentage of women in trades. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my cinematographer on the film was, was a woman and, um, Autumn Aiken is amazing. And it was, it was kind of crazy for her too, because she represents the 3% in her own trade, you know, and it's a very technical job. She works with cameras and, you know, technology and equipment, and she's surrounded by men too all day. And she's in the union, she's in IASI. So, um, so she had this really personal connection to the story too. So, um, yeah. So, but as far as directors, like the documentary space and producers, actually, the documentary space is just a lot more permeable for for women. Um, but interestingly, it's not paid. It's it's the lowest paid w- work you can do in film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there might be a correlation there, right? Like, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know any documentary film directors who are like, you know, um, making a really great living doing what they do. So, um you know, anyway, so it's really about the calling and this idea that you have this creativity inside of you and you have this, you want to tell a story and this is your story to tell. So you're taking on this big complex story with lots of stereotypes, lots of gender bias, lots of complicated issues. And I'm really curious if you hit any roadblocks along the way, actually, I will reframe that question. What roadblocks did you hit along the way? Because I'm sure there were tons of them. Yeah. Um, So I would say that, I mean, just for me, jumping to my mind is just the logistical challenges of having shot this film. Um, Getting onto job sites was so hard. And um, just getting the access, the permission, the insurance requirements were always staggering. Um, you know, get, just getting getting the um, getting the character at the right job at the right time. So I chose the women that I wanted as, as to tell this story, and I would sort of you know fall in love with them a little as characters and be like you know and really invest myself in developing their story and getting to know who they were. And then it's like, oops, they're on, they're working at the World Trade Center where I will never, ever, ever get access to film them. And so, you know, and that happened with my iron worker in New York, where it's like, she was on a job where I could not film her for like a year. And I didn't know how long she'd be on it. She could have been there for two or three years during the rebuild. So, so there was this constant, you know, there was one time my, my, one of my, my Chicago bricklayer was on a job and she was like, it's great. This foreman's super supportive. He's like kind of grooming me to run work. And it was this major story point in, in her career where I was like, I got to get out there and film this. And then she got laid off like two weeks before I was set to get on a plane. Um, so the, the, the nature, the unstable nature of the job site, um, you know, and I had having no idea where, how long a character would be there or where they'd be moved to next. And if I could follow 
that was like a nightmare. I'm not going to lie. And it's one of the reasons why it took so long to film this, um, to make this film and get all the footage we needed. Um, so yeah, that, that's just like, like, I'm tired just telling you about it. Okay. (laughs) So tell me where this led to, because you have a film, you have, it's all filmed. You're getting exposure. You're traveling to conferences. It's being edited right now. So you have the stories right now. So where did all these roadblocks kind of, what was the end result? Well, I mean, the end result was like, I got really lucky. Like, you know, I might've struck out quite a few times, but there were just, and there were just enough sort of moments where the stars aligned and I got permission and I shot on beautiful job sites and um, was able to capture some really really major moments in my, in these women's lives and, um, in their careers. So at the end of the day, I did get what I needed and, um, and I'm, I feel very lucky and the, and the footage is absolutely stunning by the way. And I can't wait for the world to see it. Um, I really love that my cinematographer believed in the beauty of construction as much as I did. And, um, it's just such a, like a vivid landscape and the sights and the sounds and the colors and the scale of it is just, so I'm really looking forward to like bringing not only the emotional dimension of this story, but like the actual dimensions of it in the real world, um, as a sensory experience, I think it's going to be amazing for audiences that don't really think a lot or know about construction. And my goal is to like put the grit and glory back into this work, um, for like the lay audience. Oh my goodness. Um, I love how you described that, Lorian. And the first thing that came to my mind was the fact that you talked about the beauty of construction, how everything works together, filming the job site. My immediate thought was men are going to watch this and they're going to learn <laughs> and they're going to get curious because they are people, well, people, most like gender stereotypes, let's just say they exist. Boys and men are love construction they love to watch construction shows they love to read Mm -hmm. construction books and the fact that you've added that layer into your film I think it'll just engage Mm -hmm. everybody in it in the topic I hope so I hope so and I mean that's that's really the goal is is it you know is to make it feel intensely watchable for a, a broad audience um and and a general audience you know um and I also, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love to think about how sort of the different, the different demographics that might be interested in this film. And I, and it's, it's exciting to think about how many paths might cross in, in, you know, going to a theater to see this film. Um, Cause it's very, you know, and I have characters from like the deep South and it's very heartland, it's, but there's, there's coastal cities and I have like an extreme, like a diverse cast and, um, women from de- very different walks of life and, um, you know, and it's, it's feminist, but it's also working class. And it's, I'm just, I'm, I'm very excited about how many people it will bring together. That's my, hope. I'm really excited too. I can't wait for it to come out. Uh, but how does it feel? Cause the film's not even out yet and you already have this platform. Like you're already seen <laughs> as this person who is like the one helping get more women into trades. What does uh-huh. that feel like? It feels, okay, so it, on the one hand, it's amazing because it speaks to how, how urgent and needed this film is. Um, it speaks to what an enthusiastic audience and, and what an enthusiastic reception it will have when it is finished. Um, so these are all like really positive signs and it, it helps me, 
you know, definitely like fills up my tank and helps me keep going. Um, and, you know, believing in the, in the success and the value of the project. Um, so it's amazing on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's truly bizarre because I am still very much in the trenches of making the film. Like I'm deep in the trenches. We're in the edit right now. The story is, is so complex and it's, it's been a really challenging edit. Um, and, uh, and I want to hit the right tone and the right balance. And so, yeah, so I'm like very much in, in the maker space right now. And yet I have to like switch hats and get into like the, uh, the spokesperson space quite often. Um, but it's great. I mean, it's good practice for me. God knows I'll do a lot more of it once the film is out. Um, I'll, so I'll, I'll be on, you know, a, a talking tour for the film for probably like a year after it comes out. Um, and I, I get a lot of requests for speaking engagements. Um, so yeah, so it feels, it feels bizarre and amazing. I'm, I'm really gunning as fast as I can to get the film finished because I would love even more to have these conversations after people had seen the film and there's there's a, a, there's the actual work and experience to to discuss I think it'll make these conversations a lot more like concrete and um and rich okay. um so, so I look before, forward to it, it so will, I'm yeah, excited it'll get better from here it'll yeah. get better and so it's like I want to know some of the stories so tell me tell me some of the stories in the film so, um, well, I don't want to tell, I don't want to give too much away, but I will tell you who the, who the, who the, are my leading ladies are. Okay. Um, so I was, I really wanted, as I said, to capture, I wanted to capture a lifetime in construction. And so it felt important to be able to envision what it's like to start your career as like, you know, a wet behind the ears apprentice. And what it looks like to have been in the trades 25 years and be maybe on the verge of retirement, right? And to have all of those years behind you um, and that perspective. So I'm really thrilled that I was able to get that. And so my youngest character is a an electrician in New York City. Um, she was a second year apprentice when we started filming. And um, I have a pile driver in Portland, Oregon, who is my other apprentice, um, who graduated her apprenticeship during the course of filming and um, had, you know, sort of this experience of what it looked like on the other side of turning out and um, sort of um, going through a bit of a, a wizening process in the trades, I would say. Um, and uh, my, I have a Chicago bricklayer who has been in the trade her entire life. Her dad was a bricklayer, very much came through the family, um, like bricklaying in her blood, um, but is a first generation union bricklayer. And um, she's also very involved with activism work and organizing with Chicago women in trade. So she really helped us connect to a sense of like, what what tradeswoman activism, what the role of tradeswoman organizing is. And it is really important. And I know all of your listeners know that who are tradeswomen. Um, so much of the push in terms of this movement has come from the grassroots. Um, so my Chicago, the Chicago story is really a symbol of that. Um, and then I have an iron worker in New York who is fabulous and um, super fiery as iron workers are. And um, she was the first woman I ever cast in the film and um, kind of mid-career and going through some mid-career struggles in terms of like, do I want to stay in this forever? Can I, can I handle it? Can my body take it? Can my heart take it? Um, so I think that 
that mid that like eight year struggle of like, okay, I got through my apprenticeship and now is this my life? Am I going to be a worker in this trade forever? Is there any way to advance? Will I ever be able to distinguish myself as a woman or will I just, you know, kind of be, you know, treated like all trash for the rest of my life or whatever. Um, and then, um, and then I have an iron worker in the deep South in Texas who was actually, um, 55 and, and very close to retiring and, um, has like, you know, a real, a, a very long, um, and, um, how can I say she's, she's been weathered by her 25 years in the trade and there, she's had highs and lows and she's, you know, top, she's been able to top out and there's like had these defining moments in her career, these unbelievable highs, but then these un- unbelievable lows that have, have really kind of, um, you can almost see it in her face. Like her face tells the story of what she's been through. So, um, yeah, she's an, an amazing woman and, um, five amazing women. And now I'm just really, really struggling to, um, weave their stories together, you know, in a way that feels like, um, um, a universal story now that can sort of, that every woman can see herself represented in this film. So I'm wondering through all of these characters, is there a consistent theme that shows up in all of their stories? Definitely. Um, I, I would say the, the, the most consistent theme that for me was like my biggest aha moment in, in the filmmaking process was, you know, I came at the story thinking that economic, like the economic incentives for women to do this work were the driving motive. Like, you know, these are good paying jobs. You can support your families, like so uh, better paying than some of the most common occupations for women. So, um, and that sort of economic empowerment narrative was what fascinated me at first. And I, I thought surely that's what I would find when I went out and talked to tradeswomen is how great it felt to earn good money. And certainly they all say that. I mean, and that is a powerful motivating factor. But what every tradeswoman I've ever spoken to will tell you is that if you're here for the money, you're not going to survive because it, there has to be this like abiding love of the work. Like you have to kind of like just crave it and love it and get addicted to it a little. And I mean, Ambra, my, uh, my iron worker in New York kind of followed that path. Like she was a single mom, young single mom, you know, her mom was like, you got to figure, figure this out and get it together. Like, how are you going to support your child? Um, and Amber sort of looked out at her options and was smart enough and brave enough to know, like, you know what, it's the trades. I'm going to go for a union trade. And she, she um, just, I think she went to like a, like an eight week uh, uh, Votech course or whatever, and got her hands on a few different things. And, um, and just like fell in love with welding. She was like, this is it, you know, and the smell and the fire and the heat and the, she just, it, it it just kind of cast a spell on her. And so even though like the money was a, was a motivating factor getting into it, now the fact that Amber is still an iron worker 10 years later, despite everything that she's been through, um, really speaks to the fact that you have to love it. And you really have to feel like an iron worker down to your bones, right? Like you belong there. And because there are so many things telling you you don't belong there, right? So you really have to feel it. Um, and I, I, I can say that that's, that's the most universal theme that I've ever encountered speaking to tradeswomen is like, they are, this is their blood, sweat, tears, heart, everything. They, 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 they like breathe their trade, you know? 
Because well, you don't actually meet a lot of people these days that love their job. So that's actually really nice that you discovered oh, this about amazing. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's amazing. I mean, that it's been. I, I don't think it would be an exciting film if it were just like, so I earn good money and this is what I do and. Yeah, it's been great. I have benefits. Like that wouldn't be a good film, you know? I mean, it's a great film because because of their passion for the work and the and the conflicts that they come up against in trying to pursue their passion, you know? So what are those conflicts? Um so again, I don't want to speak too specifically because these are actually some of the most dramatic kind of moments and turning points in the film, but I I think um you know, to speak generally in a way that everyone can relate to. I mean, um, the physical nature of the job is tough on everyone, not just women. You know, the the heat, the freezing cold, the long hours, you know, the being in just, you know, depending on your trade, but in some cases just being so exposed. Um, you're in the mud and the muck and I'm thinking of my pile driver right now, but um, you know, it's just, it's a very gritty reality that, and, you know, the really early mornings and like the long, the long, you know, the long um, overtime sometimes, you know, so it's just like, there's just that basic reality of like the, 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 uh, the endurance that is needed to be on, to stay on the job um, and the wear and tear on your body. Um, but for women specifically, you know, there's this whole other dimension of conflict um, and it can be very small, subtle things that happen every day. And there's like these, the trades are so social. That's what really popped out at me in filming was like, the trades are so social. Like when you're working on a crew, there are so many interpersonal dynamics that can often like go unseen, but the crew really knows what's going on. You know, there's people who have beef with each other. There's people who work well together. There's allies, there's, you know, adversaries. Like there's, it's, I mean, as a teacher, I'm going to back to like my time in the classroom. It's like, here you are teaching this class and you may or may not be aware that these kids are having like all of these dramas within internally, within, you know, interpersonal dramas that are interfering with how the day flows and how they learn. And I would say for women in the trades, it's like these kind of microaggressions and the hostilities and the subtle sense of being excluded or marginalized from a crew, not being fully accepted, not being partnered, um, you know, frequently enough or, you know, um, being isolated with like mundane tasks, like all of these things that women pretty often experience on, on the job site, that really interferes with morale, it interferes with productivity, not just for her, but I really think at the, there's a certain level of toxicity that is accepted in the trades that really, really impacts men too. It just, it, it just impacts the whole day. And I'll tell you a little story. Um, I was shooting this, actually, this woman did not make it into the film. Um, she's fantastic, but it's just timing didn't work for her and whatnot. But I did go out to shoot her briefly in St. Louis. She had been a carpenter, come up through the trade. She's, I think, 10 years now. And now she'd been promoted by her company, and she was a foreman for the first time running her first job. And she's a really positive, big-hearted, cheerful woman just by nature. But she really brings that to the job as well. So, she, you know, I was shooting for three days um, and, you know, just kind of observing how this works. This was the first time I ever watched 
a woman run work, let, you know, my, the woman that I was following and focusing on um, running work and being in this position. So, so I was really interested to see how that was and how the crew was responding to her. And so at the end of the three days of, and she would do cute things like do a team huddle in the morning and like do little cheers. Everyone got high fives. She was like full of smiles. She was so positive. I loved it. I loved her spirit. It was very different from what I had seen on other job sites. And then at the end of the, the, the shoot it was Friday. We were at the bar and having some beers. And I went outside back when I smoked and I was smoking with one of the laborers. And he said, man, this, this has just been such a great job. It's like, really tell me more. He's like, I don't know. It's just, I've been in this business for 15 years and there's so much negative bull. Like it, it can, it can get so toxic and so negative, but this job, like the crew was really friendly and people just worked well together and there was no drama. And, um, and I couldn't help but thinking as he was describing this, like that's Beth, like that's her influence. You know, I think, I mean, she's a special person, but I really do think it. there's something about when someone who knows what it's like on a job to be the victim of exclusion and to be some of the victim of that toxicity and like that, I'm just going to say toxic masculinity in some cases run amok and it runs over men too. There's a lot of good men on jobs who don't like that, who don't, you know, but, but who just kind of grin and bear it, you know, but to have a woman in charge running the work, setting the tone um, and just kind of liberating everyone to just be a little, a little gentler and more human. I think that really, really makes a difference for everyone, you know? So, um, anyway, I'm, that was like a long, a long tangent from microaggressions, and like, even though it might be subtle social dynamics, they really do make a, a difference in the long run, um, over like sustainability in this career. Right. Um, so that's exciting course, that people yeah. that you're noticing a difference when women are in charge. It just like, it sets the culture. It makes the culture a little bit different and it makes it better. And it's just like, there's another way. Yes, exactly. There is another way. There's another way. And it's not just, I will say it's not just women because I think, I think there are outstanding men who, um, who are open to a different way as well, you know, but I do think, you know, women ha have an experience within the trades of, of being on, on the, the end of a dynamic on the losing end of a dynamic. And also people of color in the trades have an experience of being on the losing end of, of certain dynamics that, that once placed into positions of leadership, they can start to remedy, you know, um, informed by their personal experience. So I, I, I think it's so important to, make sure that like women and people of color are given opportunities for advancement in the trades. So I'm curious. So I know there is just not a lot of women in the trades in general. So are women rising into those leadership roles at the same rate as men? So I know, I think it's 3% in the U S total workforce is women is kind of like, are you, is there like 3% at the leadership level or are people not rising at the same rate? So you know, I'm a huge data nerd and I love doing research. Um, but some of these numbers are, have been elusive, um, at least for me. And I, I'm, you know, in touch with tradeswomen task force and I'm not in a bubble. I mean, I'm certainly connected to, to, you know, policy advocates in the tradeswoman space. And, um, I haven't come across any really hard numbers about how many tradeswomen are actually moving 
into leadership and leadership can look different. Are we talking about, is she a foreman? Is she a super? Does she move from the union to work for the company is, you know, how many, and then there's this whole barrier of like women in construction who are on the management side. So maybe, you know, they're project executives, but um, that's totally different from trades. And yet when we talk about women in construction recently, I've seen this number 9%, 10%, right? And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? Nine or 10%. And what I realized they're talking about, all women working anywhere in any aspect of construction. It could be mm -hmm. sales, you know? So um, anyway, so the woman in construction conversation is important no matter who we're talking about. And there's so much that, you know, um, these women have in common, whether they're, you know, um, in the office or in the field, that I truly believe in like solidarity on that front and like really looking at the industry as an ecosystem as a whole. But that said, I think it's also important to note that I think tradeswomen are when you when you break down that 10% women in construction, tradeswomen, women on the tools are I believe one of the smallest percentages, right? Mm -hmm. Um of of, you know, so so it's important to note that I think they are sort of on what I would call the front line, <laughs> the front yes. lines of this of this fight for women who love building. You know, it, it is the women on the tools, which is one of the reasons why I focus on them in the film. And I they have amazing allies um, elsewhere in the industry. And I those allies have have embraced this film. I mean, I get great. Um, support from NAWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, and, you know, went down to their national conference last year and um, met so many amazing women who really feel like they are in, in the same fight with that bricklayer, with that iron worker, you know, but they're project managers or they're architects or they're, you know, estimators or whatever. Um, so, but yeah, there's, it's, it's, uh, the percentage thing and how women are moving throughout this ecosystem is, is hard to pin down. What I do know anecdotally is that so few women move into that superintendent position. So yeah. few. And in fact, the one I described, Beth in St. Louis, the cheerful one who made such a great impact on the job, she doesn't know any other women superintendents. Okay. Like she's a unicorn in her world, right? Um, and so I know they exist, I've met them, but, you know, to find a woman who has come through the trades with that really valuable experience of the field, and then is promoted into leadership where she has an opportunity to make a whole different kind of impact. That is very rare, very rare. And it's one of the things that I really want to focus on and continue to focus on with outreach for the film in, um, you know, especially in the corporate space. Like I recently mm -hmm. came from Autodesk is um, a supporter of the film. Autodesk is the company that makes AutoCAD um, and a lot of other construction software. Um, and they, um, I recently was at their their national conference um, and they, we did two panels. They're, they're really supportive of looking at tradeswomen and elevating the trades in general and women's issues. Um, and they did two panels with me and um, the focus really for both was how do we, how do we um, create ladders for tradeswomen to advance in their careers, right? So that these careers are actually long-term and sustainable um, and, you know, provide new and exciting challenges for, for work. So how do we do that? Them. What did you learn? Well, how do we get oh, started you know even? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I 
feel like I want to get back to you. Like we should do a part two podcast because we did a focus group on this last year at the, at the same conference. And then this year I had a few um, people on the panel who had some interesting ideas, but I really, I really think this idea of sponsorship Mentorship and sponsorship is really key. And what people have to understand about advancement in this industry is heretofore, until now, it has always happened through informal networks, through, you know, going for for beers after work and your buddy, you know, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I think you'd be great for this job. I'm going to recommend you. Or it's like the father-son thing or the uncle-nephew or whatever. I mean, up till now, the industry has been pretty like homogenous socially in terms of, um, yeah, I will just say that it's, it's been, you know, we like to stick with our affinity groups. And so the people who have predominated this industry have, have supported each other's advancement, but then you have, you know, through informal networks, right. Um, but now you have this absolute necessity with the labor shortage. And it's like, what is our next generation workforce going to look like? And everyone in the industry knows, okay, the workforce is changing. We have to start looking to non-traditional populations, women, people of color, minorities are going to be the majority in this, in this industry, in this workforce eventually. So that's really shuffling the deck, right? And so these informal networks don't work anymore because it was always based on, Hey, you're like me, we go for beers together, whatever. Um, And now, and, I mean, women, let's just take women, women are often outside of those dynamics. They're not included. They don't go to the barbecues. They're not, they're not invited to, you know, um, the the thing out, you know, beers after work. So, so how do, how do, how do we create those, these networks for women? They have to become formalized, right? There has to be um, formal sponsorship structures where a company has provides technical opportunities and I mean um, training opportunities and even in terms of soft skills you know like I mean if you've been swinging a hammer in in Carhartt's all your life and now you have to wear business casual and like hand out a resume and you know it's it's a it's a transition for a lot of women so um, there's there's a lot of, of training and mentorship that is needed I think and for women to really know this is where you're, you go to get it this company is offering this um, you know, once a month on a Saturday, or, you know, this is, you know, the place you call to find a mentor and, you know, set up, you know, monthly meetings where you can talk about your career goals, you know, so I think there, that we need to really start thinking about, let's make this accessible to non-traditional populations in the trades and let's make it formal so that it doesn't have to do with being, you know, how many people like you on the job or who's going to tap your shoulder and invite you to this thing. And you have to know the handshake and blah, 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 blah. No, it's, it's, it's there for you. You know, I love it. So formalize it, set goals, make it a really clear career path for people who want to excel in the trades. Yeah, absolutely. And technology is a big part of this. And this is why I love partnering with Autodesk because you know, technology has to be a tool that workers are comfortable using. And there's a lot of people in the field right now who are not, I mean, they're still reading paper blueprints, right? And so, so there's a kind of opportunity here to say, hey, you know what, we're bringing in this new generation, let's bring them in and teach them the new tools, we'll have a better workforce. And we've like given them a really valuable asset to move themselves forward. So I think it's a really interesting idea there to, to, to actually look at technical training programs, um, as a pathway for those. 
or even have like the younger generation teach the older generation about technology? I mean, that I, I'm all about that. And I think the apprenticeship model, like, you know, learning the apprenticeship model of learning from your journeyman. And um, I think there's a lot of like rich tradition already in the trades of, of knowledge being passed down. However, as we know, like, there's also new new technology coming up. There are new methods coming up that some of the old timers don't necessarily know. So I think it's both. It's like you have to receive what you know has been has been time tested, and you know receive what the elders have to offer, and then also know that um, you know there's new gadgets. <laughs> there's new gadgets that they might not you know have worked with yet that you know the younger generation can really embrace. Okay. I love as, it. As the youth tend to do. Yeah. Yes. I love <laughs> I mean, that. I know that like I'm a teacher, I'm 37 and my students are 16 and like the way they use their phones is like, I suddenly feel like my mom, you know, <laughs> it's just, yes. like, who doesn't even know how to attach emails. Like it's, it's just, it's humiliating sometimes to see how good young people are with technology and it gets better and better, you know, as the years go on. So. So I'm really curious because I've heard you've you've probably heard this saying like it's not a supply problem and I think in a lot of industries it really isn't it's just that like people don't see the talent within their organization to develop them to that next level of leadership but in the mm-hmm. trades because there's so few women in trades is that like the one industry that it might be a bit of a supply problem So I love this question and I actually think this is the most the most important like leading edge conversation that we need to have right now in terms of increasing numbers of women and I have a really great example very practical very specific about how it's not a supply side problem and this example comes from Boston um the Massachusetts Gaming Commission builds they build a lot of casinos and they have a lot, they're a lot of building projects. And they decided uh, a few years ago that they were going to, you know, be leaders and say, you know what, we want 15% women, trades women building our building. So they set this really ambitious goal, 15% women. Um, and then they partnered with um, the policy group on trades women's issues which was, you know, an, um, a nonprofit um, organization, basically like a think tank of tradeswomen, former tradeswomen, policy advocates, business managers now, union um, um, leaders, um, but all really representing tradeswomen. So, so Mass Gaming Commission went to PGTI and said, you know what, help us meet this goal, help us meet this 15%. And they developed a marketing campaign called Build a Life, um, and that put tradeswomen's faces on billboards, on subway posters, told real personal stories about how women were changing their lives through this work. And it was a recruitment program, apprenticeships in Boston, so that, you know, the pipeline was very clear. It was like, we need to put this story out there, engage women, recruit them, get them into training. And they know, and we know that they'll have jobs at the end of it because we have set the demand so high, right? So what Mass Gaming Commission did is says, we're going to set the demand high and supply will follow. And what's interesting to me is that like, I don't, not, nothing's a supply, but everything is, <laughs> everything in the market is dictated by demand, right? It's set by demand. So, 
so it's just interesting that we've forgotten this and suddenly in this industry it's like we're trying to put push a string up a pipe saying oh well just like we just need more women to go out there and not get jobs that's what's been happening is that i can't tell you how many tradeswomen i talk to who don't get enough work i mean really qualify my characters in the film Vanessa's been laying brick her entire life, okay? She was the top of her class. She graduated top of her apprenticeship class. She's like, you know, placed second in the Spec Mix 500. She's an incredible bricklayer. Why did she spend half of the year out of work, right? So, so this problem of retaining women, of keeping them working, um, you know, and giving them the hours that they need is, is it's it's a real problem in the industry, so it's very frustrating for those women to hear labor shortage. Everyone's okay. about the, it's, it's frustrating for them to hear the words labor shortage because they're like, until every woman I know is a hundred is at a hundred percent employment, please don't use those words. So there is a real disconnect, and I think the disconnect is demand. Developers need to set the demands very high. They need to set these ambitious benchmarks, and then crucially know where their resources are in terms of partnerships with training programs and put a lot of money behind marketing, which was so, you know, I know no one wants to pay that money, but that's how Mass Gaming Commission met their 15%. They have met and exceeded those goals because they put a little bit of money behind those billboards, behind those subway posters, behind in reaching out to a non-traditional population that doesn't necessarily see themselves in this work. So I think all of those pieces need to be in play. And I love what's happened in Boston. I think it should be a blueprint for everywhere else. Um, and, you know, I, I hope to um, organize a panel this spring with some of the people who are involved in making that happen in Boston and hopefully, ex, you know, making a, you know, making it available online, what we, what comes out of that panel. Cause I really think more people need to know um, about this strategy. That is, sounds amazing. So it's really about setting, I think it's setting that big goal is the key. It's like, we set that goal. What is it going to take for us to meet the goal? And they figured it out. Exactly. Exactly. And this is like, this is an industry of builders, right? So, I mean, I always found it interesting, like, if it's in the bid that you have to build a 65-story building, like, that's the bid. And you have to build the building to the 65th floor. And you can't come and say, oh, we really only could get to the 60th floor. Like, the, it, you, you set the goal. And then you go about using all the resources you have. And, and this is an industry of builders and problem solvers and architects and engineers. So why we can't design our way out of this problem is like crazy to me. And it's, it's actually not, it's actually not impossible. It's not even that hard. It's been done before and everywhere it's done. It's because the goals were set first. Yes, the goals. You know. Okay. And the thing is, it's a great and it's and I think another issue is that women just don't know, right? Like they need to see that role bottle on the billboard to even the thought cross their mind to be like, this could be something that I could do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Visibility is key. Visibility is key, but it's just one piece of the one piece. One piece of the problem. Yeah. And all the mm -hmm. pieces need to move together. Okay. This was so great, Lorian. Thank you. So Lorian, we are at the end of the interview and I always encourage people to take action within 24 hours after learning something new. So what do you recommend that people do? Ah, within 24 hours. Um, yeah. Okay, so I would say start small and start at home. And like that could be, like I'm going back to 
you know, all the way back to start, start teaching your daughters how to build, right? So like start a really fun building project at home and, and get the whole family involved and, you know, teach your daughter, give her some power tools, right? Like get her, help her get her hands involved in this, in, in building. Um, if you are connected to your school, your kids' schools, um, you know, really advocate for like a career fair day or even like getting some, some local tradespeople to come in and, you know, do some fun hands-on um, show and tell stuff. You know, like I, I love, I, I love seeing trades come into the classroom. We have gutted shop classes all over the country. It's been happening for decades. Most kids don't even get shop class anymore. Um, so I think it's really going to take a push from parents to, to encourage schools to bring some of that practical craft back into the classroom, even if it's just for, you know, a special guest speaker day or whatever. Um, so I'm a huge fan of like of, of, of a grassroots push to put tools back in kids' hands and, and give them that exposure to this um, to this career path. Um, I'm I would love to see the Girl Scouts have a tradeswoman pin. This is like one of my personal this is my, my my personal goal is by the at some point soon there will be an official tradeswoman pin. <laughs> oh that's amazing. <laughs> that you, that, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, I I'd say start there. You start know start there. Okay, just get some hammer. And even for an adult, like just get out the hammer and hang the picture right just start just start because it sounds empowering it's absolutely exciting. absolutely yeah and it's, there's no better time because like you can basically learn how to do anything on youtube i mean there are so many people out there to help you and guide you um and and so yeah i, I mean i think the whole ethos of this film and the whole ethos of tradeswomen what makes them so so inspiring is like you really just have to roll up your sleeves and dive in and do it and that's what I did when I started making the film it feels amazing that's what tradeswomen are teaching us and inspiring us to do like doesn't matter if you've never done it before just start just start I love it just start um so if people want to learn more about the film how do they do that um you can go to hardheadedwoman.com um I should point out that it's woman singular w-o-m-n a n hardheadedwoman.com um and yeah we have um you know links to great resources if you're interested in this topic and want to learn more um there's a way to donate to the film we're still very much fundraising and, and needing that support um so yeah and you can follow us on um, instagram on social media at hardheadedwoman amazing thank you so much for coming on Lori. and this was a great interview Oh, thank you so much. It was so fun. And I, you <laughs> I know what? That. I think you'll have to come back next year once the film is out. A hundred percent. Of course. Of okay. Course. Let's make that happen. <laughs> I look forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I am so excited to share with you today that Ambitious Every Day is here in the world. It is like having your very own leadership coach in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals every single day. It is the coaching exercises that I take my clients through, illustrated by the talented Jill Jackson. So it's a book. There are questions that you ask. It's just like I'm your leadership coach right there in with you, holding your hand, helping you figure out what ambition means to you, helping you set goals and come up with a plan to make them happen. And you can actually get 
a preview for free by going to andreajensen.com forward slash journal. You can also order your physical copy and it will come to you in the mail, but you can try it for completely free in a PDF right to your inbox. Go to andreajansen.com forward slash journal to get yours today. Hey, if you're still listening to the podcast, if you've made it this far, I would probably assume that you're getting some value out of these weekly podcasts. And I would like to ask you a favor. If you could take a minute to give me a review on iTunes. So click on the podcast, give me some comments, give me some feedback, because that helps spread the word about the Diversity at Work podcast, and it helps to build more diversity champions and get people learning, get people curious about what it's really going to take to close the gender gap. And after you've done that, if you still have some time, you could take a screenshot of the podcast and post it in your social media. That can help spread the word as well. Thank you so much.